From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, March 4th. Happy Women's History Month. I'm Monique Gagan. Today, I'm joined by Impact Alpha's David Bank to talk about the week that shook the world, the weaponization of finance, and the green way forward. Hey, David. Hey, Monique. How are you? I caught up with your friend, John Lekumnik, uh, one of the real experts on systems thinking and ESG, uh, to talk about how the invasion of Ukraine has shaken up finance. So we'll have a listen at, at that. And we have a quick plug from Duke's Kathy Clark, um, another friend of yours, uh, for next week's uh, Agents of Impact Call. Truly, I'm blessed with lots of brilliant friends. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in impact investing. War and the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine dominated the news this week. Impact Alpha keyed in on the mobilization of finance to blunt Russia's power. We'll have more on what's happening in Eastern Europe later in the show. The size of Russia relative to the global economy makes what's happening there dominate news cycles. But we must not forget the crises happening in Syria, Yemen, Ethiopia, and Palestine. And just as more than a million refugees poured out of Ukraine, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned of millions of climate refugees to come. The 4,000-page report was a call to action for climate adaptation along with mitigation. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called it an atlas of human suffering. Impact Alpha reported on the emerging crop of climate adaptation investors who saw it as a roadmap for climate resilience. In deals, Advantage Capital, headquartered in New Orleans, will invest $200 million in businesses led by entrepreneurs of color in communities generally overlooked by growth equity investment firms, said Advantage Capital Sandra Moore, this week's featured agent of impact. Derek Handley, who left Richard Branson's B-team, raised $30 million for Aero VC to invest in alt-proteins, carbon capture, and industrial decarbonization. In keeping with the times, Aero also launched a distributed autonomous organization, or DAO, which quickly raised $6 million. And London-based AgDevCo raised $90 million for African agribusinesses. The nonprofit Impact Investor has invested $150 million in agribusinesses that provide farming inputs, logistics, and production assistance for Africa's smallholder farmers, particularly its women farmers. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email each day this week. Okay, David, Impact Alpha weighed in on the Ukraine story this week. Well, Monique, how could we not? It had the feeling of the world shaking, like like a lot of things in the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. And the role of finance really stood out. Do you really want to have your money invested in Russia? Was the way Fiona Hill, ex of the National Security Council, put the choice for companies and investors? It, indeed. Um, our friend John Lekumnik uh, calls it the weaponization of finance, um, all the tools that were brought to bear um, by uh, many, many players all around the world. He had some really sharp thoughts on how the rules are changing and how the invasion is changing finance. John, you've been uh, one of our uh, guides and mentors and, and teachers around systemic risks. We had you on an Agents of Impact call uh, last year. You're the author of the book that came out last April, Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters. Um, but we thought of you all week as the reverberations from Russia's invasion of Ukraine rattled through the financial markets. And there was a whole raft, as you well know, of, of announcements of, of folks pulling out and uh, of, of ESG ratings of Russia being uh, downgraded and and finance kind of uh, taking stock and also um, taking action around these events. So it feels like a kind of um, 
shift, and we were hoping you could help us make sense of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we want to lose sight of the fact that in real life, people are dying, and there's sort of this evil invasion of a democratic nation with 44 million people. I mean, I don't think people understand. Russia only has 186 million people. They are invading a country with 44 million people. Um, there's already been a million refugees. So I, nothing I say should minimize the, the on-the-ground human suffering, and we should do what we can to relieve that. Um, I think in terms of finance, when we look back, this is really going to be a seminal moment for a lot of things. First, it's going to end forever or should end forever. This idea that the capital markets somehow exist um, in a hermetically sealed world or should exist in a hermetically sealed world away from politics and policy um, and that um, investments don't have impact. Second, I think we're going to see um, a further acknowledgement of the idea that money is sort of a social construct, which is a huge major issue. Russia has lots of money, but what is it? They are, you know, dots of accounts receivable in other central banks. They are still there. They just can't use them. Right, that's what the sanctions do. Um, we have created some industrial sanctions. We're not allowing certain parts and technologies to go to Russia, but we also have um, cut them off from the international banking community, frozen accounts, and so the question becomes: In effect, what is money? If it is a medium for exchange, and you can't exchange. It's just a dot sitting somewhere on a database. You know, obviously, the the financial world is trying to drive some kind of message here with all of these with all of these actions. Right? That is clearly the goal, David. I mean, we have weaponized finance, and I don't normally that's a, considered a negative, but I think it's just a recognition of the reality that finance is part of the real world, and when faced with this sort of crisis that attempts to blow up any sense of law, law or order or morality um, or sovereignty or anything else on which sort of the modern society is built, all the tools that are at one's um, beck and call are used. We're fighting an asymmetric war. Um, the Ukrainians, unfortunately, you know, we're fighting with bullets and Molotov cocktails. We're fighting with financial instruments, right? We're, we've cut them off from SWIFT. We've prevented access to bank accounts, even traditionally neutral powers. Switzerland, with the supposedly famous secret and neutral banking system, has cut them off. Um, so we are trying to use modern finance to have impact. You talk about agents of impact, in this case, the entire Western world is trying to be an agent of impact, weaponize the financial system against Russia. Um, and I think that we are realizing that that is possible. And in so doing, it makes you rethink um, just what those relationships are. I mentioned what money is, 
what happens in a world um, at war. Um, and this is what happens. Is there something interesting about that willingness in this case to use those tools to try to influence, you know, real world actions um, that portend some kind of broader reevaluation of those things? For example, you you know, I know that there's always been country risk baked into, you know, investment decisions and things, but clearly the, the risk was not um, calculated or valued um, appropriately or else the folks wouldn't have made such an abrupt decision when the risk played out. And, um, and so the question is, are there other, for example, systemic risks that we're also misunderstanding or, or mispricing that we now understand might actually have negative consequences, for example, for the not just your portfolio, but for the whole world economy, not to mention, as you said, you know, incredible, you know, human suffering along the way. I saw somebody refer to the war as a negative geopolitical externality, which seemed an overly sterile way of describing the, the, the bloodshed, but did put it in the category that there's other negative externalities um, at, at work in the marketplace. You know, finance has a, a lovely way of making very emotional things bloodless, right? All risk is reduced to volatility and surprise pricing. I, I, your question, I think, has a lot to unpack there. Um, first, yes, country risk has always been considered, um, but that is sort of an external risk to your portfolio. If you're saying our systemic risks price well, I would argue no, because they're systemic, they're hard to get your hands around. So I think we have underpriced climate change. I think um, we've underpriced the lack of diversity and inclusion. I think we underprice income inequality, which leads sort of to political instability. And so there's what, if you're a, a technician, you would call gap risk and going to the left-hand tail. You know, when you when you do a, a VAR analysis or any other sort of um, risk analysis, you sort of assume that the future will be some something like the past. You may take things out of sample. You may change the order. You may stress test them. But for 60 years, we haven't had a major country invade another major country just because it wanted to. And so I think that risk was, it's not that no one saw them, people like Fiona Hill saw them, but it was by and large discounted by the financial committee. We just had a vote in the U.S. Congress in which everyone but three Republicans, so the vast majority of the Republican Party, which by and large has lined up against considering ESG disclosures, climate change disclosures, et cetera, has stood with the Ukraine and is supporting all these financial impacts that we are trying to have. And what's interesting is these are impacts designed with intentionality. Right? We have intentionally designed them to try to affect Russia. I have lost faith in American politicians being at all consistent in their thought. But if they were consistent in their thought, then it would be hard for them to turn around the next time and say, well, that's not a financial consideration if, if you want to target climate change or if you want to target income inequality. Um, the reality is you can intentionally design 
investment programs and financial structures to target systemic risks that are both systemic risks to the environmental, social, and financial systems and systematic risks, by which I mean non-diversifiable, um, to the capital markets. War is a systemic risk. Well, that's what is coming clear here. I mean, for example, a lot of people have been commenting FBP or, or the other oil companies that have, have written down, in, the, in some cases, tens of billions of dollars in, in, in Russian assets did the same because of climate change. The blowback would be considerable that they were politicizing finance, as you said. But here, they, here they're politicizing finance and, and, and everybody's cheering that on. ESG, look, I mean, the advantage of modern portfolio theory is it's bloodless, it's clean, the math works. The only problem is it's not attached to reality, right? What we're seeing is reality is complex and messy. And the other thing that will come out of this, I believe, when we look back on it in a number of years is you don't have a choice to not make a choice. Not making a choice is taking an action. If you don't write down, um, if you don't take action about climate change, you are making a choice. And if, much like right now, if you, if you have assets in Russia, if you have business dealings in Russia, you have to make a choice as to whether or not to continue them or to discontinue them. And so that same logic, I think, prevails with regard to other ESG issues. The only difference is that the urgency and the intensity is not there on some of these issues. People who listen to your podcasts feel it around climate change. I feel it around climate change. I feel it around income inequality and diversity and a bunch of other things. But I think that's why people totally without realizing the irony of what they're saying, say, you have to do something about Russia, but if you do something about climate change, oh my God, you're politicizing your finances. No, you don't, you know, I think what this will make clear in hindsight is when it comes to large systemic risk issues, you don't have a choice. You have to decide which side you're on. So the implications going forward are that the world now resets its geopolitical baseline. Germany, for instance, um, which has never contributed what the rest of the world wanted it to contribute to NATO's defense budget, has now agreed to do so. In fact, Vladimir Putin has done what no a succession of presidents, whether Democratic or Republican, since Ronald Reagan have not been able to get it to do. Um, and I think you will see the same thing around some energy policy. Um, I think at first there may be some negative implications for those of us who would like to see a move away from fossil fuels because clearly energy independence in terms of time sequence is going to be important first. If the reality is we did not sanction most of Russia's gas. It is still being transported and sold uh, primarily in Western Europe. And those hard euros 
are to some extent financing Russia's war, right? And I understand that you can't shut off energy to Western Europe, which would happen if you shut down the gas pipelines. But Germany did say that the new gas pipeline wasn't going to be built, which was a major issue. I wouldn't be surprised to see, for instance, an increase in fracking um, to try and replace some of the world's dependence on Russian um, fossil fuels with American ones. But after we get past energy independence, I think they will also that will also provide an opportunity to move faster towards a transition because the status quo ante is now revealed to be unstable. And so we might if you have to change it, you might as well change it towards what everyone wants to go to, which is the COP26 Accords. The old saw of don't let a good crisis go to waste. What would be the um, positive changes that might come out of a disruption like this that might... Um, well, I uh, think it will be faster towards energy transition. Um, I think we will recognize that distributed energy um, and sourced from alternatives um, is not only cleaner and better for the planet, but doesn't minimizes the geopolitical risk. I mean, the world would be a lot better place if we hadn't had, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, if we didn't have to consider the consequences of um, can we, should we shut off Russia's exports of fossil fuels. The only way to get to a global state of stability is to have enough distributed energy capability, solar, water, wind, hydro, whatever you want to cite, um, that is located around the globe in a way that doesn't allow autocrats to use it as a weapon. Energy independence, and then the green transition becomes a patriotic mission as well as a as well as an environmental um, exigency. I, I would argue it always has been patriotic, but yes, in a different way. Yes. Well, thank you, John Lekumnik, um, for joining us and, and on short notice. Um, again, John Lekumnik, the author of Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters, and the host of Outside In with John Lukumnik, a fellow podcast. Uh, and we always enjoy talking with you, John. So thank you for, for joining today. My pleasure, David. Fascinating. I always enjoy hearing from John as he brings in a system-level investing perspective that, as you know, I really appreciate. Yeah, we love that systems thinking. And um, uh, on that, we're also looking forward to next week's Agent of Impact call. With my friend, Kathy Clark. Here's her invitation. Many people ask, what's the difference between ESG and impact? On the call, we're going to walk through a four-step process that anyone can follow to operationalize their ESG goals using the practices of impact management. This means moving from thinking of ESG as just a reporting exercise to realizing it's a codebook for operating in ways that align with emerging standards and regulations. If you're a corporate manager or an investor in companies or SMEs that are managing their environmental, social, or governance impact, you'll want to attend the call. 
I'm excited about this because we'll have fabulous guests on the call, including Brendan Morrissey from Walmart, describing their learning journeys and ahas in ESG and impact management. See you Tuesday. That's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to David, John, Kathy, and our producer, Isaac Silk. Subscribe to get full access to Impact Alpha and The Daily Brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take care.